Well, good morning, and thank you for joining us today, and thank you, worship team. Thank you for joining us online or here in the building with us. Take your Bibles and find that uh, book that you maybe haven't read too often in your Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, as we continue our, our series, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16, through chapter 4, verse 16, uh, this morning. We just sang the words about our good, good Father and that his, He's perfect in all of His ways. Uh, that really echoes what we were studying, especially last week, as we were in the opening verses of chapter 3, where we talked about how God has made a time for everything. And we just saw this, this interchange between the, the good and the bad, the desirable and the undesirable, and yet you put it all together in chapter 3, verse 11, and and Solomon says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. And so we needed that reassurance, didn't we? That, that somehow in this eternal plan, he says, he says God has put eternity in their hearts. In this eternal plan, there's, there's hope and there's reasons. And it's very reassuring. As we come to this next section, it's almost like, did Solomon change his mind? Because Solomon goes back to questioning. Solomon goes back to saying, but this, this, is, this is what's so hard. And I think he really echoes what we all feel at times, because when the bad stuff happens, we question God. Sometimes we even blame God. And for many, they kind of walk away and ignore God. And so Solomon, in this section, goes through six issues that are really troubling issues, and the way he expresses them is more like he's giving man's view, not God's. And uh, this is man without God. And yet Solomon says it in such a personal way that you know he struggled with it. If not, when he was writing it, he's reflecting sometime in his life he struggled with it. And, and that's where I think it touches us is that we've all had these struggles. And so we identify with, in a sense, his questions, his doubts, his, his angst over these issues. Here's the first one. The problem of injustice, chapter 3. Verse 16, and I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. He introduces this section like he does uh, actually five of the six, I believe, by saying something like, I saw, or I thought, or I looked. You can tell he's wrestling, because he's wrestling between, I, I know there's this beautiful plan. If you look at eternity, God's going to do something with this, but then I look at the immediate, and I go, but I saw this, and I saw this, and I thought about this, and I was troubled. And after calling us to a God-centered, God-filled view of life, he says, but this is a problem. Injustice in the place where there's supposed to be justice. In other words, in the courts. And uh, then like now, the very place you would want to expect justice sometimes is corrupt. I think the American system of uh, judicial system is, is probably the best in the world. And yet 
stuff happens and there's lies told and believed or injustice or you can go uh, sometimes to other countries where Christians can be condemned in a place of justice condemned to die even and so what do you do with that and so verse 17 he says I realize God's going to bring it to just to judgment sometime there's a time for everything including a time for complete justice so is is that a fatalistic view of justice and injustice that, um, well, there's really nothing you can do till Jesus comes? Uh, scripture teaches us to defend the fatherless. Jesus uh, modeled it. And in fact, Solomon, who's writing this, was a judge as well. Kings functioned as judges. You may know the uh, really kind of a unusual but fascinating story of Solomon early in his reign. The story's in 1 Kings 3 if you want to read it for yourself. But there were these two prostitutes who each had a baby and they all, they, these two ladies and their babies lived in the same house. And one night, one of them wakes up to realize she has suffocated her baby. And her baby is dead. And so what she does is she does a switch with the other lady during the night and then in the morning claims that the living baby is hers. And so both of them are claiming the living baby is mine, and they come before Solomon, who is functioning as king and judge, and Solomon hears their complaint, you're both claiming it's your baby, and he says, bring me a sword, and he says, let's cut the living baby in half and give each of you a half. And immediately the true mom says, no, 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 <laughs> don't do that. Give it to her. And Solomon discerned, of course, you know, give, the, give the baby to this lady. That, it's hers. It, it's hers. So we could see that where Solomon could, he would bring justice to a situation. And yet he's the one saying that sometimes it just doesn't happen. And so we are in that same position because most of us aren't kings or judges. But uh, maybe, the, maybe the greatest question is, do we have compassion when there is injustice? Do we, do we care for and help and defend those who are treated unjustly? Jesus was in that situation when the uh, Pharisees brought this woman who they had caught in adultery. It was a, a set-up situation, but uh, he, he didn't defend her sin, but he showed compassion to her and rebuked them for their accusation and their Motives. So do we have compassion? Uh, don't get caught up in the arguments and debates about racial injustice or other injustices. Just show compassion every place you can. And if God gives you a place and an opportunity that you are marked by the compassion of Christ and the, and the, the desire for justice, People have faced so many. People have faced abuse and so many issues. And is our mar heart marked with that same compassion? Uh, and when we realize we can't fix it all, rest in God's eventual justice, as Solomon said in verse seventeen. Injustice. Second issue he tackles is the the obvious one: the problem of death. Verse eighteen. I also thought. So as I'm processing these contradictions to the goodness of God, right? I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. 
As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. And then he says this. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of animal goes down to the earth? So it's a, it's a very dismal view of death saying, we're just like the animals. Came from dust, we go back to dust. And as we read that, we go, yeah, that's true. We know we all die and animals die, people die. We all, uh, our, our bodies are gone. But verse 21 really kind of presents us with a theological dilemma because we go, Solomon, are you saying that you're doubting if there really is life after death? Are you doubting if there is a hell and a heaven? And, and uh, by saying, who knows if that... I think we need to calm down and always read things in context because clearly Solomon does not believe that. He's already... Just last week in our study of chapter 3, verse 11, he says God has put eternity in our hearts. And he has just said in verse 17 that God will bring things to judgment. And in fact, at the very end of the book, Solomon addresses this very issue, chapter 12, verse 7, and says, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So, so Solomon's theology is intact. Don't worry about that. So what is he saying? Why is he bringing this up? I guess there's kind of two possibilities to understanding this uh, within the proper theology of Solomon. One would be that uh, this actually is, is, is a, a potentially a, a rhetorical question where, I mean, just your voice inflection is, who knows if the Spirit returns? And the implication would be, God knows. And then at the very end of the book, he answers and says it himself. That's possible. Or he could be, in fact, expressing, this is what man without God is grappling with. All they see is death and caskets and you put the animal carcass there and you put the human body in the ground and what's the difference? Uh, So he could be expressing that as well. And in fact, it does just reflect that the uncertainty of what happens after death is why there's such a fear of death. But here's one of the places in this section of questioning and doubting that Solomon gives us a nugget that is important, I think. And so he, he draws a conclusion from this in verse 22 and says, So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? It's kind of like since so much is uncertain, since, since what happens after death is, is, a, is that vague, uh, unknown, kind of a shadow kind of a thing, what are we supposed to do? See, Solomon is not always answering all the questions the way I'd like him to, the way you might wish he would. But he is sure good, isn't he, at, at drawing out the kind of thinking that we go through and the troubling thoughts that we have. We need somebody in Scripture to say, this is what we struggle with. But what he says here is that there is nothing better. This is like the third time he's talked about our, our life here in, with this terminology saying, not, not in a negative way, but there is nothing better. This is really good. It is really good to enjoy your work. It is your lot. And again, just that word kind of sounds like, well, it's what I got to do. I owe, I owe, so off to work. That's not the kind of thing he's saying. 
the word lot in the Hebrew is like, this is my portion. This is my assignment. Uh, Psalm 16, 5, uh, the psalmist says, the Lord has determined my lot and the lions have fallen me in pleasant places. It's it's hearts full of gratitude and saying, I'm grateful for what God has given me to do, my portion. It's like like he sees all of life and the whole world like, like a big pie and then God's given me a slice. And says, out of the entire world, I've given you this slice. Enjoy your slice. Made me think of pies, of course. Uh, but, uh, you know, growing up, if, if, if mom had a pie, I was being very careful to make sure that no one was getting a bigger slice than me. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't be looking at the slice that other people have. Be looking at and appreciating what God has given you. So look at your work that way. And whether your work is paid or unpaid or or whatever stage or, or, or occupation you have, don't just endure your job. Determine to enjoy your job as a gift from God. And then don't envy the career of somebody else and don't gloat if your career seems superior to somebody else. Enjoy what God gave you to do. And he keeps coming back to like a real regular life. Solomon talks a lot about what we do every day. The problem of injustice, the problem of death, the problem now of oppression. Chapter 4. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun, kind of a, the meanness factor. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen all the evil that's done under the sun. That's a very discouraging way to put it, I'd say to Solomon. But he is identifying with the hurt. I mean, this isn't him, but if he's indeed writing later in life, he has developed a heart of compassion for those who hurt, and and he has seen everything. There there has always been slavery somewhere of some kind. Today, there's sex trafficking. There's always been hate or hate crimes, and uh, the stories of abuse of all kinds are heart-rendering. And he says, they have no comforter. You can't fix that. And so, if you've expressed, experienced abuse, oppression, meanness, Solomon's writing for us to say, you know, someone gets it. God understands this. Uh, he says, sometimes it's to the place where a person would rather die. I don't think Solomon's saying he's there, but some would rather die, and some would wish they'd never been born. And, and so we take seriously uh, depression and, and, uh, and suicide. Does all this disprove God's good plan? Because just last week in chapter 3, we were saying that he's put eternity in their hearts. He makes be- everything beautiful in its time. But no, just as you, as you try to grasp the eternal goodness of God, you can't ignore, but you must face the hard things, and, and understand that the world without God is feeling this a lot. The next tension he brings up is again about, uh, about work. And he says, you know, 
he, has, he has exalted the, 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 the value of work. But now he says, even our work is just filled with problems. And all God's people said, yeah, it is. <laughs> Amen. And I saw that all labor and all achievement, verse 4, spring from man's envy of his neighbor. So the good stuff is tainted. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Or on the other hand, the fool folds his hands and ruins himself. That's the lazy approach. And then verse 6, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after wind. This is kind of a fascinating uh, piece of wisdom that, that takes the extreme edges, the ditches that we can fall into in our work and then brings us back to the, to the main road of, of balance. See if you can... Uh, See if that's what you see here. All labor and achievement, that's, you know, we, 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 we applaud achievement. They are so good at what they do, and we wish we could be like that. And, uh, but he says, the problem with that is, it's really not so well motivated. People trying to compete with one another, and, and somebody wants better pay, and, and someone's jealous of the, other, of the person's position, or what they get to do, and... and uh, Someone's just working hard because they want to have the, you know, the whatever, the yacht, the vacations, or what. So he says, even the even the most hardworking, admired people, it's tainted with with sin. And so he says, in a sense, it's really all meaningless and a chasing after wind. He has this this uh, clear view of man's motives. But what about the other end of the extreme? Verse five: the fool, the fool folds his hands. That's, a, that's, a, that's, that's you on the couch this afternoon. <laughs> that, that's, that's that picture. Uh, so some people just live their life lazy, and what happens? Well, he ruins himself. So on one end of the spectrum are people who are maybe overworking out of selfish motives, and the other end of the spectrum are people who don't hardly work at all uh, out of selfish motives. And you've, you've maybe worked, tried to work alongside them. They're the, the, the time waster, the clock watcher, the leave it to the next shift kind of people. And so it's all tainted. But then it's like Solomon in his wisdom can't, can't help himself from saying, but, but there is a balance. Verse 6, better one handful, one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And he seems to be, be kind of giving a jab to the, the person who's overworked out of out of envy and, and that kind of thing because he says, how about just being content? One handful instead of two and you'd be so much better off. Are you excessive in your ambition for the wrong reasons? And one of the ways you can tell is, do you have peace? Uh, term is translated quietness or rest. Are you at peace about your pay, about your position. This isn't saying that there's any job where it's like, well, finally, I found a job with no stress. So that's, that's, that isn't realistic. But is it the right kind of stress? Is it, the, is it the stress of the work and the stress of you got to deal with these things? But is your heart right that you're not falling into the ditch of overwork and ambition for envy's sake? Nor are you falling into the ditch of laziness is there is there tranquility uh, sometimes uh, we hear about the the sports stars and and uh, you know 
they're, they're negotiating. They, they aren't content with the 50 million or the 100 million. It's got to be 110. And we go, we don't understand that. But I think Solomon actually understands that. That, that, that it, it, I really do believe it's not about the money. It's about winning the competition. I don't want other quarterbacks to make more than I make or whatever it might be. And, and so we knock off a couple of zeros, but, but we've we're, we're got the same kind, of a, same kind of an issue. So do we have a God-centered view of that? Do we have a contented heart? Proverbs, Solomon in another place was writing the same thing when he said, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fatted calf with hatred. So the real choice is between contentment or living with turmoil and hatred. So it, it calls us to assess what's really going on inside. Our work does matter to God. Next problem that uh, is bothersome if God's plan is really good is the problem of uh, isolation and loneliness. Verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. There's that issue again. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. A miserable business. So, He's picturing someone who uh, doesn't have family, doesn't say that's the guy's fault at all, but he doesn't have family. And uh, the implication, though, is he's very successful at his job. Uh, He's able to accumulate. But suddenly he stops and asks himself, who am I working for? I mean, my, my needs are all met. Who am I working for? God has put an inbuilt desire in us that we would work to benefit others. It is, it, it, the desire is not just for ourselves, but this man, and, and, and he, he calls him out on it because, in fact, he has fallen into that, yet there was no end to his toil. His eyes were not content with his wealth. So, so he had no family, had no place to go with it, but yet he'd become inward-focused and, and greedy, and he just worked to run up the score, if you will. And he realizes, this, this is meaningless. You know, I, I don't know why he did that. This picture, the person that, that Solomon's picturing is, some, sometimes, sometimes overwork is our comfort zone, because that's what we're good at. And, and so sometimes the the peace that we're missing, and this man was, whether, however it was that he was alone, he, uh, he prioritized his work, and he realized what I didn't have is relationships. And many times work is easier than relationships. I mean, relationships are hard. And so he says, why, why am I depriving myself of, of enjoyment? And the word he uses there, some of you have the translation, why am I depriving myself of good? And I think that's probably a little better way to, to express This is the most basic Hebrew word for good. I'm doing all this work. I have all this money. I have all this success. And yet I can't say I've got something good because wealth, success, all those things in themselves don't produce good. And what he was lacking was relationships. Uh, he's this guy who had become 
uh, self-centered, successful, but maybe keeping people at arm's length. And, and, and this actually transitions uh, Solomon to say, let's talk about relationships. Let's talk about relationships. Our need for relationships. Two are better than one, verse 9, because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. He is calling us to pursue friendships, community, partnerships. Uh, I see in here four really different advantages for reasons why we need people. Let's just, let's just think these through one by one. First of all, we achieve more together. Two are better than one, verse 9, because they have a good return for their work. You get more done. It's reward that two people working together often can accomplish more than two people working Lone Rangers individual. The other night, for some reason, I caught a a snippet of an interview at halftime of a University of Kentucky game, and basketball coach John Calipari was saying, the guys have to share the ball. Okay, why do you have to share the ball? Because he knows that if the guys work together and pass more, the team will make more points than if everybody's trying to make the most points they can for themselves. Good teammates don't worry about who gets the credit. So many jobs, you just plain need the other guy. Carpenters, you need someone to hold the other end of the board because how are you going to do it? And, and carpenters who work alone got to figure stuff out, and you, you probably do a great job of that, but how nice it is to have somebody hold the other end of the board for you. You need that. I was, the other night I was just uh, driving out of the Costco parking lot. I just backed out and started going, and I saw a guy over here. He had bought a 65-inch TV, and it was on a cart, and he was trying to get it into his SUV by himself. So I said to myself, I don't have a 65-inch TV. I'll just let him struggle. No. <laughs> no, I pulled over, and uh, in a matter of seconds, one on each side, you slide that thing right there. He'd have been working a long time just trying to manipulate that big thing into his vehicle. He's calling us to say, are you a good teammate or are you a lone ranger because we achieve more together? Secondly, we recover better together. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. The carpenter who works alone and gets hurt needs someone to call for help. You go hiking in the wilderness, don't go alone. If something happens, you're going to need somebody and through the years at Open Door, I feel like some of the most effective life-changing ministry is what's happened not in this room, but in other rooms, in homes, maybe coffee shops and restaurants, because that's where we really help each other. And if you've been a part of a group of guys or maybe a, a group of women where you can honestly share and pray and care for each other, you, you know what I mean, you know who you are, you know this is true. And if you are struggling with something alone, don't, don't protect your image. 
seek help, share it. We recover better together. Verse 11, we're warmer together. If two lie down together, they will keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? I appreciate this a lot, this verse a lot more in my married years than I did with my brother sharing a bed as a kid, but this is probably talking about more than physical warmth. But we are made for close relationships. Something more than sports and weather. Um, One of the greatest costs of the pandemic as we've all seen or perhaps know someone or felt it ourselves is isolation uh, seems like the most obvious case are our, our dear folks in in uh, uh, care facilities nursing homes or hospitals and uh, no one can visit them and i just uh i respect and applaud some of the efforts that are made stories of people that when the summer and the fall you'd visit with your loved one through a window that's whatever it takes but the cards or letters or calls or texts, whatever you can do, because we're warmer together. And then verse 12, we are also safer together. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So the first is a uh, kind of a picture of a battle, a marine under fire, and he's going to go down, but then his buddy shows up. And now they can win. Or the picture of a rope with three strands or like most cables. Uh, some years ago, my uh, brother uh, sent us a rope for the kids just to, to play with, made on one of these kind of things. Uh, vintage hand-cranked rope maker that take and twist these three strands. And, and the idea of that is that you look at a rope or a cable and you'll see there are multiple strands because when, when the load is under strain, you might see one begin to stretch or tear or even break, but the load isn't lost because the others are still there. And that's how we're designed to function. That's what marriage is supposed to be. One person is really hurting and, and so, uh, honey, how can I help? In the body of Christ, a couple of people who, who are bonded together and who you know you can ask to pray for you, and, and, and we really do care. And so a strand of three cords is not quickly broken. But all of this sense of isolation is, is, uh, is the thing that makes us question God's plan. And thankfully, Solomon has, has uh, not uh, left out some of these nuggets of wisdom of how we can address these things. But he says, on the other hand, we're still dealing with the problems. Here's one, verses 13 through 16. The final one he mentions is the problem of fleeting popularity. And and his his illustration is a political one. See if you can identify this as you think through the the seasons or the decades even of politics in America. Better a poor but wise youth meaning better off than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take instruction or warning. I have nine. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. So we've seen a transition from the old king to a new king. But then verse 16, there was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too was meaningless, a chasing after wind. So he was just uh, 
following how probably surrounding nations, because Solomon uh, maintained his uh, role as king throughout his, he had a 40-year reign. But uh, he pictures an old king uh, who thought, I'll always be king, and he kind of foolishly assumes that. But then some kid uh, arises and says, could he even be from poverty or from prison? And, and we don't know what scenario he's thinking of, but did, did he have the charisma? Did he have the grassroots movement? Was there treachery in the court? We don't know what happened, but somehow this young guy gets, gets to be king. And, and so now the young guy is reigning, going, I'm the king. And he, he develops the same probably uh, arrogance as the earlier king. And people all are following me, but then guess what? Next people come along and they don't like him either. And so you have these endless cycles politically. And it just shows us how fleeting popularity really is. Are the kids who were popular in your high school still popular? Are you as cool as you used to be? We just we, we see how empty that is, and he, he, he points that's the final meaningless statement in this section at least. This too is meaningless of chasing after wind. So if you're if you're wanting people to really like you and applaud you and you're really cool, says so you're never gonna find it there. And so <laughs> I'll look. All right. Catch a falling star. Uh, so what do you do with all of that? The interesting thing about Ecclesiastes is that uh, there isn't really a, in the, I should say this section in Ecclesiastes, there isn't really a conclusion, something that wraps it all up. And the reason is that, that we, are, we, are, we are reading a, a book, an inspired book of scripture that has an ongoing cycle which is building a larger argument. So let's just make sure we can catch what that might be. Because it's describing for us our need for God. Last week, we saw everything is beautiful in God's eternal plan. So, okay, we get that. We, God is putting things together, the good, the bad, the time for this, time for that. There's a beautiful plan. And then what we see this week is that but there are things on earth that are troubling because of man's selfishness. And so he's listed these six things, injustice, oppression, and work problems, everything that, in a sense, that drags us down. And where is he going with it? Well, there's these cycles that we talked about, I think the first time we, we met with this book, where he's going to keep building an argument and then come to a conclusion. What we're going to see when we pick this up next time, it's going to be after Christmas, but is that we've got to worship God. And when we don't know his plan, when we're troubled by these things, we have to face what is empty and then worship God. In fact, what we're going to find out in the beginning part of chapter 5 is just how, how unqualified we are to question God. There's kind of a Job feel to it, how unqualified we are. So we need to trust his, his plan. But clearly not everybody is thinking that way. Not everybody knows that. The conclusion, I've just jotted this at the bottom of your outline is something like this. If there's a conclusion, it's kind of a conclusion of emptiness, if you will. But humanity is desperate for God's plan because everything man-centered is touched by sin. Humanity is pretty desperate. Uh, your neighbor, your coworker, your relative, you know, the people that seem irreligious or uninterested, I don't think they are. They're just struggling. They're just doubting. They're just, 
They're watching all the, the things that end up empty and saying, there's no hope. What's the hope? That's what Ecclesiastes is about. So what we put on our banner, a God-filled life in an empty world. That's, that's what we got. And so I just would, would, would like to encourage you, and, and uh, as Nate comes to lead us in prayer in a little bit, this is kind of transitioning us to that. Think of some names, and maybe even in a few moments of silence here, a coworker, a neighbor, a relative, whatever it might be, that God's put on your heart who you know is feeling this emptiness spiritually that only God can fill. Like it's Pascal who said there's, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. Who is that person? Would you just kind of, maybe even just mouth that name silently? Maybe two, maybe three. Who are some of the people that you know are empty? If you, if you, if you get the bigger picture, you put your faith in Christ, you have eternal life, you, you are trusting God for his eternal, beautiful plan, but you know people who aren't. Maybe somehow in this in this coming Christmas season, the one who came to earth for our redemption. Maybe God will use you in some way. So let's be thinking about and, and praying for those people. Let's pray together. The worship team will come and then uh, Nate will lead in our uh, prayer time. Heavenly Father, we are just uh, fully aware at times when we feel empty. And Lord Jesus, if we know you as our Savior, we know eternity is secure because of the cross. If, we, if, if those things are in place and we feel emptiness, oh Lord, how empty must our, our neighbors or friends sometimes feel. Instead of somehow attacking or ridiculing or debating with those who have empty hearts, oh God, give us the compassion like you had that God, you so loved the world that you sent your only Son. And so we look forward to the message of your incarnation coming to earth as a baby, but the message of your redemption on the cross. And may we be good communicators of that which you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.